Hi everyone, it's Andrea Ferretti and this is episode 12 of Yoga Land. My guest today is Chrissy Carter. Chrissy is an amazing yoga teacher who's based in New York City. And we met actually digitally years ago when she sent some photos into Yoga Journal. And I remember looking at her photos and thinking how gorgeous her classical triangle pose was. And I like to think that was the basis for our very solid, nerdy yoga friendship that we have. Anyway, Chrissy is an alignment-based flow teacher, and she's still very much steeped in practicing and studying Iyengar yoga, so that's why her triangle is so gorgeous. So we're going to talk a little bit about Iyengar yoga today. It's not something I've talked about yet on the podcast. It's not a consistent part of my current practice, but I feel that it's a very important style of yoga, and we talk about why. Chrissy has been a teacher trainer at YogaWorks for 10 years, so she's taught 25 teacher trainings for them. So I also got to ask her about that and kind of what it's like to grow from a beginning teacher to the point where she is now and she has so much experience. Like so many of us, there are so many facets to Chrissy beyond her yoga practice. She started her career as a trader on Wall Street, and she is a Francophile. She loves cooking and design, and we got into, you know, just how yoga can play out in all different aspects of life. So here goes my interview with Chrissy Carter. I want to start with your very unique career path. And I don't know if a lot of people know that before you were a yoga teacher, you worked on Wall Street. Yes, I did. (laughs) Which I think is probably pretty unusual to go from Wall Street to being a yoga teacher. Maybe not. So can you talk a little bit about that? And I'd love to know what are some specific skills that you learned in that job that have served you as a yoga teacher that might be surprising to people? That's a great question. Yeah, the transition is pretty extreme. And when I was young and I was working on Wall Street, it was a very exciting time. It was a really exciting part of my life. But to be completely honest, it just was very clear from very early on that it was not for me. And so the transition to yoga actually was really because I found yoga as a way to release my stress and to try and process the environment that I felt like I was surviving every single day. And that sort of led me down the path of teacher training, which led me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. But when I think back to those times, what was really interesting is that I had to think on my feet. And that's something that I don't think comes naturally to me. I'm definitely more of a Like I need 72 hours in front of a mirror, like dialoguing, coming up with my comeback. I want to journal about it. (laughs) I can relate to that. You know what I mean? On the training floor, that's just not possible. Like if there are 50,000 shares of a stock for sale, you got to like boom, boom, boom. And you have to think quick on your feet. And I think that that's a skill that I really learned how to embrace because Mm -hmm. I had no choice. And when I'm in the classroom, being able to think on my feet and change my plan and also be able to read the room, a lot of that has to do, I think, with my ability uh, to navigate like Wall Street back in the day. Wow. That's amazing. Was it, um, I don't know, never worked in that environment. I would imagine it was the majority of your coworkers were male. Yes. I was one of the few women in the room. Yeah. So what actually led you to getting that job? 
what decision led you to put yourself in that environment? It was almost the product of indecision, to be honest, Mm -hmm. because I was an economics major in school and I am a naturally creative person. And so when I look at how I landed on Wall Street, it's like this bizarre string of events that kind of brought me there. But basically, I submitted my resume to a bunch of different firms, thinking that this was the quote unquote, like right thing that I should be doing after college. Um, I think my dream was probably to move to Paris and, you know, just, I don't know, wander the streets and eat croissant. But clearly, that wasn't a strong career path. So I decided to submit my resume and I got an interview. And, um, and from there, it happened just organically. And, and ironically, the interview was in French because the guy who was interviewing me um, spoke fluent French. So we had this amazing uh, interview and he told me that Wall Street was a very sexy place. And I said, great, where do I sign? I landed on the training floor and I was like, oh, no. Wow. <laughs> this is not at all what I expected, but it was so exciting. And I learned so much. And I think I really began to understand my own resilience in working in that kind of environment because it's definitely go, go, go. And those kinds of personalities, they run towards conflict. They run towards the drama. Whereas me personally, I kind of recoil away from that. So it was a very, very good lesson in like rooting yourself strongly and facing whatever was coming your way. Yeah. That's amazing. When you got into yoga and you started teaching yoga, did you feel like, ah, this is my place. This is the environment that I need to be in. Or or was there kind of a transition for you? There was definitely a transition for me. I felt a little bit like a fish out of water in both environments because in yoga, it was so the complete opposite of everything that I had been doing up until that point that I almost felt a little bit not part of the club, so to speak. I didn't understand the rituals and I was still a very new practitioner. Also, the concept of just being your own boss. And I felt for the first few years, I was just wandering the streets of New York, trying to figure it out, you know, this independent contractor lifestyle. But no, there was definitely a transition. And as I got more experience teaching, I really feel like I actually grew into myself. And it's really since I've become uh, more comfortable in my own skin and with what I'm doing that I've actually felt really peaceful and at home. Mm -hmm. I think it's always good for people to hear, especially new teachers, that it takes a while and that teachers that they look up to and perhaps seem like they have it all figured out at one point didn't feel that way. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So you have been a yoga works teacher trainer for many years now. How many trainings have you done at this point? 25. 25. I've been doing this for 10 years. That's amazing. And that training is... um, known for several years back being kind of the brainchild of Matia Zrati, who's one of the preeminent Ashtanga yoga teachers in the country, and Lisa Walford, who is just an amazing Iyengar teacher. How would you describe your personal teaching style within that framework? I definitely come from an alignment perspective. My own personal practice is with Iyengar yoga, and I'm a, just a, in an extremely passionate sort of alignment-based practitioner. And so I think that definitely comes through in my teaching. And I do try to incorporate flow and breath and mindful movement. So I, I have sort of like this slow flow approach, but I'm definitely interested in the organization of the body and the integration of the body. To me, that's sort of the fascinating piece. This, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that Iyengar yoga can be kind of misunderstood. And I think, you know, sometimes that is 
due to the way that it's taught. You know, I have been in Iyengar classes where it's kind of the cliche where you do like two poses in an hour and a half and you're ready to stab your eyes out. I'm sorry. That's just how I personally right. feel. Right. And, but then I've been in Iyengar classes where, with Lisa Walford where I just, where I felt like so alive in this way that I n- have never felt before. So mm-hmm. what is it that you love about it? First of all, I think like different strokes for different folks, you know, and, and you have to meet yourself where you are. Because when I first started practicing yoga, I went to an Iyengar class and I thought it was the most boring thing I'd ever experienced. And I just wasn't in a place to be still. Mm. I needed to move. And I was exploring at that point in my practice, like big, gross movement. And Iyengar yoga is very much about the refinement and the subtlety of action. But I mean, I think Iyengar yoga for me is an opportunity to get to know myself deeper and deeper and deeper every time I come to the mat, because you're really looking at one concept or one posture from many, many different angles. So, and I think a skilled teacher in whatever tradition it is, has the ability to take one pose and introduce it to you in many, many, many different interesting ways. So that when you come to the pose, it's almost as if you're seeing it and experiencing it for the very first time. And so Mm -hmm. what I appreciate about the Iyengar method in my practice is that I feel like I'm uncovering the postures over and over and over and over again. And there's something so beautiful about that because especially when you think you know something so well, so intimately after years of practice, it's so refreshing to kind of strip away your attachment or your idea of what something is and really just be present with whatever's happening in the moment and those postures and the way they're instructed I think are so intelligent and they create the space for you to really explore who you are and and where you are on Mm -hmm. that particular day. That's beautiful. That should be made into a little poster for Yangar Yoga. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I'm not going to lie. There are moments when we hold like, you know, Prasarita Padottanasana for like eight minutes and I want to dig my eyeballs out with a spoon, but... (laughs) But the thing about holding postures is that there's really nowhere to hide when you mm-hmm. posture and you become very, very aware very quickly of what you take for granted, not only in the posture, but in your own body. It's immediately noticeable where you collapse, where you're overworking, where you're pushing or where you're using your will or your ego to create the shape that you think you should be doing because it's the shape you did yesterday, you know? Um, so there's something about holding postures I mean, there's something that Carrie Oworko said um, once, which I, oh, I love so much. She said, in yoga, you can always come out of a pose, but sometimes in life, you can't come out of the pose. That's so and true. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, absolutely. Just, just got goosebumps. Yeah, it's the same thing. I remember when we, when I first started meditating with Sarah Powers and we would just meditate for five minutes and she would, she, before we meditated, she'd say, do not move, do mm-hmm. not scratch an itch, do not leave the room for five minutes. And it was so frightening to think (laughs) I would get so anxious before those five minutes about not being able to escape. And then I would do it and it it does, you know, you train up. It's just like anything else. I would do it. And it was like, oh, okay, I can do it. I don't have to scratch an itch. I don't have to escape. So yeah, I, I can relate to that. It is. I actually just wrote something about hitting a yoga plateau and why I think that's a good thing. And a lot of that is because you have to deal with your own boredom. 
you know, you have to look at and stay with what is happening instead of, you know, making progress in quotes, right? Instead of like achieving the next thing. It's like, you have to just stay. Yeah. And, you know, I think that plateaus and places of like deep inspiration, I think that's just the natural flow of the practice, you know, Mm -hmm. contract, contraction and expansion. But I just happen to be right now in this moment in like a really rich place to the point where now I feel like before I even come into the pose, like for example, if I jump my feet wide apart and I'm about to fold forward into prostrated padottanasana, like that moment to me is so interesting, like to feel the subtle shifts of weight in my feet, to feel the work of my legs, to feel the position of my pelvis, to feel my breath and and then to do it all over again. I feel like the whole pose actually exists in that moment before Mm -hmm. you can come into the posture. I don't know. And I sometimes find myself like sweating, you know, like just it's such a form of beautiful concentration that it is really its own meditation and motion. Um, So for me, asana is my spiritual practice and yoga is my meditation and I'm using my physical body and the subtleties that I perceive as, you know, a way to, to be still. That's so awesome. That's very inspiring. You know, one of the things I've always loved about you, I will just put out there that you and I, you were, I think probably my only true friend who I met just through the interwebs. I know. (laughs) We're like old school pen pals. I worldwide internet. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And you know, there's this Lena Dunham, um, one of her podcasts, she talks to Ashley C. Ford, who's a writer and, and it's all about how they became friends on the internet. And I listened to that podcast and I'm like, Oh, that's Chrissy for me. (laughs) And you know, we are friends. Yeah. And I think, you know, just when you were just talking, I just want to say, you just have such a beautiful writer's mind. You have such a, like, and you're such an observer and you have such a poetic way of of thinking about things. And I remember when I first got your, heard about you through Yoga Journal, I can't remember exactly how, but I went to your blog and I felt like I knew you immediately. So anyway, I just want to encourage people to go check out your blog because it is, you really, you just really, to me, you are a writer as well as a... That's yeah. a huge compliment. Thank yeah. you, friend. I appreciate <laughs> it. So I guess to put a really fine point on a question... I, and I expressed this to you in email, I do wish that more yoga practitioners would take Iyengar classes, even if they don't fully commit to a regular Iyengar practice. And that's probably my bias because that's kind of what I did. Like early on in my practice, I, like I said, I was introduced to Lisa Walford and it just blew my mind and um, really just changed my relationship to my body and my understanding of my body. And it, it helped me in the flow practice that I do now. So I would love it if more people would try Iyengar yoga. I wonder how you feel about teachers. Like if you had, you know, if you could kind of like wave your magic wand, if you would say that yoga teachers should at some point study Iyengar yoga, even if they're not teaching Iyengar yoga. Definitely. And I can only speak from my own experience, but it is a form of continuing education. And there is so much skill in that method. And I think that it trains you to see the poses in a very detailed way. It also introduces you to different prop techniques. I think it also, it because of the very scientific and, and poetic approach, I feel like it's a really beautiful balance of shteram and sukham. Like, and I'm trying to figure out how, what I mean by that, but I think it's a really, really great way of sort of deepening your understanding of yoga. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
one of the things we've been talking about is how you've come to this point of feeling like, and, you know, as I said, you've done so many teacher trainings, you've had a lot of time to think about this, that teaching yoga is as much about teaching as it is about yoga. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or maybe some, if it's helpful to think of it in this way, what are some common misperceptions young teachers might have about teaching yoga that we can help them with? I think one of the first uh, misconceptions that that new teachers have is that teaching is going to be exactly like practicing Mm. that if you have a really devoted practice that you love dearly, that somehow teaching that is going to feel and look exactly the same as your experience on the mat. And the truth is it's like comparing apples and pizza. Like they're not, they're not related and they are related. I don't know how we could make like an apple pizza. I don't know if that's <laughs> someone could. We wouldn't. I'm sure we could. I'm sure. Maybe with a little bit of like goat cheese. Probably. If it was like a galette. Pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. A little French style. No, but the truth is, like, obviously, you need a practice to teach. You need a wealth from which to draw, and you need to teach from your own experience. So teachers need to be practitioners first. And I think one of the things that teacher training accomplishes so beautifully is to really teach someone how to be. Um, a student and and how to learn. And in that process, be able to communicate to someone else how it is that they experience a posture. How is it that you feel trikonasana? And, and why is this cue of rotation in the upper arm bone for downward facing dog meaningful to you? So you have to have a practice to draw that information from because students really want to see how you translate yoga through your personal experience. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of dry principles and dry cues. But the truth is teaching is so much more about teaching in like, how are you communicating what you know? Is what you're saying actually landing with your students? Being able to read the room and perceive like, who's bored? Who's lost? Who um, thinks they understand it, but actually has no idea? (laughs) And who needs to be challenged and who needs to be seen? And, and so you're reading the room and then you're asking yourself, how does this information actually need to be delivered so that this particular student can hear what it is that I want to share with them? So the way in which you communicate, I think, is just as important, if not more important than what it is that you're communicating. How do you prepare for your classes and how much of your class is prepared versus what you're describing, which is responding on the fly? I would say 5% of my class is planned Mm -hmm. and the rest of it is just walking into the room and seeing what's up. And I think, I mean, obviously that is the product of experience because I can sequence in my head. I can take one concept, you know, like broadening of the collarbones or uh, engagement of the serratus anterior, or I want to do handstand today. And then I walk into the room and I already know how to break that pose down so that it can be digested in little meaningful nuggets throughout the practice. But then I'm reading the room constantly and drawing from my students in order to determine what direction to take the class or And sometimes I walk in really with more of like a philosophical idea, something that I'm experiencing in my life. And I try to find a pose that I feel sort of represents that. And then sometimes, honestly, I just walk in, especially when I'm going through a difficult time or if I find myself overthinking and I find myself over strategizing a class, I know that that's a sign that I'm too much in my own head and not 
present in the room. Mm -hmm. And so those moments I've trained myself to just let go of whatever agenda it is I think I want to share and be more receptive to the people in the room. Mm -hmm. Jason has talked to me about, I remember like way back in the day, asking him about the experience of teaching because I was so blown away by his presence while he was teaching. And he said, I don't know, it just feels like essence comes through me while I'm teaching, when I'm really in it. Yeah. It sounds kind of like what you're describing. Like if you find that you're over planning and over strategizing, it takes away from, I don't know, it takes away from the yoga part of the experience. There's a quote and I don't know who to attribute it to, but someone shared this. One of my students shared this with me. I think it's from a musician, but he said, you can plan, but you have to leave enough room for God to walk in the room, Mm. which I love. That's yeah. But when I teach and I'm in the zone, I really feel more like a conduit. Mm -hmm. I feel like my job is actually to get out of the way because the more I try and impose my idea of what I think should be happening, the more I feel like I'm getting in the way Mm -hmm. of the teaching, Mm -hmm. that it's really not about me. It's about this dialogue that I'm having with my students. And I think that's really where genuine teaching happens when you're completely present and you let go of your agenda. Mm -hmm. And how do you prepare in your own practice for being in that space? I mean, is it your personal practice that gets you into that space of being able to teach in that way? I think for me, it's um, really just about focusing on the students. I feel like when I'm focused on my students and, and creating relationships with them and really getting to know what it is that they're trying to work on and getting to know them as people, I feel like then I open myself up to be receptive to their needs. Mm -hmm. I obviously have a harder time doing it when I don't know who's in the room, but I think you you can get to know someone very, very quickly just based on watching their practice, getting to know what they need. But honestly, this idea of presence reminds me a lot of I don't know if this answers your question, but it reminds me a lot of like cooking in that when you're learning a recipe at first, your eyes are glued to the recipe book and you're, you're frantically measuring everything out and it feels totally overwhelming and there's so many steps. But if you have a lot of experience with that recipe, you don't need the book. You can just do it on the fly. And then ultimately you begin to create your own version of that recipe. It, it becomes something that belongs to you because you tweak the ingredients and you play with the timings and, and then it's, it takes on its, its own life. So I think for teachers, experience is such a huge part of what enables one to really step back and yeah. let the experience unfold on its own. Yeah, that's a really good metaphor because I completely understand that. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, once, you're, once you have put in the hours with cooking, because that's something I can relate to, you know, like, does it need more sweet? Does it need more right. acid? You can just, it- just taste it and you're like, oh, it needs more salt or right. oh, the consistency is not right or the timing's not right. You know, like it's like when you're working with pastry or something and you just feel the dough and then you know when it's ready, but that takes experience. And I, I really would love to share with all like new teachers that it, it does take time and you have to be patient. Mm-hmm. And I know there's this like push to, to try and, and be the teachers maybe that inspire us in our own practice. But it takes so many hundreds of thousands of hours to arrive in a place where you can completely open up and let the teaching come through you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the Malcolm Gladwell rule. I can't remember the number of hours right now. <laughs> but, so, you know, many, so many hours. It's very many. It's very, very, very many hours. It's the same thing with writing, you know, and editing. People have asked me like, 
how long did it take you to write that one piece? And I'll say, I don't know, like an hour. And they'll say, how is that possible? And it's like, I have trained my muscle, my writing muscles. I have spent many, 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 you know, countless hours thinking about construction and what's needed and how to communicate something in the first paragraph and how to, you know, get to the heart of things quickly. And I can just sort of brush away. I can like more easily sweep away all the extraneous information so that it just comes through. You know, you're talking about how this being a conduit takes time and takes experience. So when you're teaching new teachers to teach a class, do you encourage them to create more of a structure and, you know, write their sequences down ahead of time so that they feel very prepared? Definitely. Yeah. Contemplate one or two postures or a genre of postures or an idea that you want to focus on and then break it down into its common denominators and try and teach those denominators throughout the practice and be strategic in the cues that you want to emphasize so that by the time a student arrives in the big finale of a class that they've heard the cues before and there's a familiarity with them and absolutely. And, but at the same time, if that teacher is not practicing on their own, then it's harder for them to change course. For example, if they plan an arm balancing class and then 10 people in the room have wrist and shoulder injuries. And then they're like, oh my God, now what do I do? I have to completely throw out my plan and come up with something else. And there can be a lot of anxiety in that. But if you're practicing on your own and you're embodying these cues on your own, then the cues are within you and the sequencing is within you. And being able to, um, to think on the fly, but also be present with the students in the room is, I think, a huge part of teaching clearly. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I want to get back to food for a moment. Yes. (laughs) You are a total foodie and domestic goddess, and I'm always inspired by your food. And, you know, you're kind of like no holds barred. Like you share my love for for butter, which. Yes. (laughs) So when and where did you start cooking? When and where did you learn to cook? I grew up in a home where my mom was always cooking. And dinner every night, we had our meals together and like food was such a central piece of our home life. And my grandmother also always was cooking and sharing and and her home was always so open. And so this idea of the table as sort of like the heart of the home is something that I really grew up with. But in terms of cooking, I really didn't even start cooking until like probably my early 20s. And I experimented a lot and I really wanted to be a good cook, but I don't think I was a very good cook to begin with. And I think I tortured many, many dear people to me um, (laughs) with botched meals that I had poured my heart into and they just did not come out well. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I really stuck with it because I love it so much. And, And just like everything else, like teaching, we were saying this idea of just practice, 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 put your heart into it, let go of the results, which is such a huge yogic principle, mm-hmm. uh, is probably what has led to the fact that I can actually cook something decent. Yeah, you know, but, I, but I love cooking. I mean, I love the whole process of it. And I, more than anything, I just also love sharing it with people. Yeah. I've never asked you this before. Do you have a food philosophy for yourself or like a specific, you know, overarching structure for your diet? For my diet? Yeah. Well, I try to eat a balanced diet. 
I am definitely a creature of habit, but I do try to balance like, so like I, I eat the same thing in the morning, pretty much I'll have like a banana and then I'll have eggs and toast, you know, with butter, of course. (laughs) And I'll have, I eat a lot of avocados. Mm -hmm. I eat a lot of quinoa. Mm -hmm. I eat salads and, you know, beautiful produce and stuff. But like, I also love a really big, rich French meal. And I love like decadence sometimes. And I just, I don't limit myself to anything. I just like to have it all. Frank, that's my philosophy. Yeah, just like everything in moderation, everything in balance. And also Whole Foods. Whole Foods. You definitely. are like the Whole Foods queen. Your ramp butter. I have to try that at some point. Really do. It's so good. Oh my gosh. And you did you just come up, you just like saw some ramps and thought, <laughs> I got to do something <laughs> with these. <laughs> well, I mean, compound butters are so interesting to me. Like you can, I, the first compound butter I ever made actually was in college. I was making this recipe And it called for a butter that you made by sauteing shallots and adding wine and herbs Mm. and then adding it to softened butter and mixing it all up and rolling it into your own little butter log and then using that to saute whatever the recipe was. And so compound butters have always been so fascinating to me because you can create all these different flavor profiles and make your own butter with it. And it's, I mean, what could be better? I mean, it seasons whatever you're cooking. Exactly. exactly. Plus you could make them for breakfast, for example. You could do like orange zest and cinnamon and, right? And put that on bread and, oh my God. So, and you're also a Francophile. Yes. um, Did you live in France in college? I did. I lived in France for about eight months and it was amazing. But I've been in love with France since I was probably eight years old. My parents took me to Paris for our like big European or oh. our family's first trip to Europe. And I just fell in love and I studied it passionately in school. And actually my very best friend is my, well, I met through my high school's exchange program with another high school in Geneva. And now she and I are like best friends still after we met when we were 14. So she came to your high school from Geneva. Yes. Oh, neat. When you go back, do you go to Geneva? Because Geneva's in Switzerland. Yeah, do you go she, to Geneva? Well, she lives in London now. And she lived in Paris for a while. But yeah, we see each other once or twice a year. So yeah. what's your favorite like decadent French dessert to make? And someday we have to make it together, by the way. Yes. Oh, God. Um, probably. I love how seriously you're heart. taking this. this I can see all the chocolate. All the chocolate going through your mind right now. Um, Well, I really love a beautiful tartatin, like an apple tart. Mm. And I also love anything chocolate, like chocolate mousse, um, like a rich chocolate mousse that's super simple, but beautiful. And I also like pretty, would would that be pretty doable for someone like me? Who's not. It is. Yeah. It is also Profitole, do you know Profitole yes, with the ice cream in the middle and the chocolate sauce? Oh yeah. So all you have to do is make a pate, pato choux, and then and that's pretty easy. So and then you just cut it up and put ice cream in. That's so good. That sounds good. That's definitely the hardest question anyone's ever asked me. <laughs> really? Because there's so many. There's so many options. <laughs> you know, I want to. This is. I'm skipping around a little bit, but I want to go back to teaching because you posted something on your Instagram recently that I just loved, and I also think is kind of an unusual perspective. And I want to, I want to talk to you about it a little bit. So I'm going to read it. It says one of my first teachers, Mark Whitwell, who I didn't, I love him. I didn't know he was one of your first teachers. One of my first teachers, Mark Whitwell taught me that teachers should be friends first 
A teacher should care about their students the way one would care about their friends. This has been probably the most important principle of my career. I believe it's important to teach people, not poses, to see beyond the physical to the spirit. In The Tree of Yoga, Iyengar writes that the teacher is not more important than the student. I wholeheartedly agree. I may be able to see things in my students that they may not be able to see within themselves, but they can see as much in me as I can see in them. I may be able to communicate what I know about yoga, but only they know what it's like to be who they are. I cannot impose my ideas on their practice or their lives. My students are my teachers, and I consider it a sincere honor to serve them. That is so wonderful. I mean, I think your students are so fortunate to have you and that mindset. And I think it's a, you know, a different perspective from what people may perceive to be traditional yoga, which is kind of like a, a guru mm-hmm. relationship. How did you get to this place? I guess one thing to ask is like, did you always feel comfortable being so vulnerable and transparent? Or did you feel like you had to kind of get your wits about you as a teacher first and get some experience before you could be a teacher who's a friend? I don't know. I feel like maybe potentially both. Because if I think back to the early days of teaching, I can't speak for everyone. I didn't have any idea what I was doing in the very beginning, like most of us um, at the very beginning of any endeavor. So there was definitely a lot less space for me to be myself because I was still trying to figure out how to teach and to navigate my my way through the classroom, which is such uh, an interesting landscape to be in in the classroom because there are so many different experiences happening simultaneously. But at the same time, I feel like I've always been very open and receptive to the people in my class. And I think I've always been perceptive of what's happening in my class. And as you had mentioned, like, I think one of the things that comes to me is just this ability to observe. And I think that to to teach, clearly, you really do have to first observe again so that you're not teaching some arbitrary idea, but you're seeing how that lands with the people in the room. And then you're changing course if necessary. But to me, you know, like devoting myself to my students is a very natural thing because I want to make sure that the practice is actually useful for them. I, Mm. no one cares about what I'm teaching, if it's not relevant to their practice and to their life. And relevance is only possible when you understand where people are coming from. And it's not to say when I wrote that about being friends first, it's not to say that like I gab with all my students for hours and hours in pajamas, drinking wine, and we all got to the movies after. It's not that kind of thing. I mean, I do firmly believe in boundaries and I do feel that the boundary between teacher and student in many ways creates the space for friendship to happen. Mm -hmm. And when I say friendship, I mean like just genuine caring. Like I really care about you and your practice and I see you, you know, I I feel seen by me and I'm not just teaching a pose and I'm not just looking at your body, but I'm trying to see you. And the thing is the students see the teacher just as clearly as the teacher sees the student. I think that's really beautiful that you talking about wanting to see the whole student, because I think that Jason and I talk about this all the time as humans, that is such a primal desire is to be seen. Like all of us, our whole being is to be seen. And I think for a lot of people, their teacher seeing them in that way is just incredibly healing. It can heal a lot of old wounds. It can heal 
you know, relationships with their parents that they never had, you know, it can, you know, never being seen by their family in the way that they wanted to be seen. The other thing that comes through to me in this quote is, and I'm actually glad you brought up the thing about boundaries, because I didn't think about that, that people might perceive the quote to mean like, you're (laughs) having these like close, intimate friendships with people. It's not that it's, what comes through to me also is that it's a mutual respect. Yes. Right. It's like, you're not waltzing in feeling like you're delivering this, you know, speech to people, you're looking at them and you know that they are just as intelligent as you and, and you're offering your knowledge based on what you're seeing. We're having a shared experience. And I, I really do feel like we're all in it together, you know, Mm -hmm. like everybody is there together and we're all on the path together. We may be at different places on the path, but my experience is no more or less important than anyone else's. And I'm just there to communicate what I love and what I understand about yoga and to maybe help someone find more clarity on their path, but ultimately so that they can give themselves permission to do the same for themselves in their own life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we saw each other in New York, I like to talk about mentoring on the podcast and especially mentoring um, between women, because I think it's really important for young women to have mentors. We talked about you going back to your high school and giving a talk. And so I'm wondering, how how did that go? And what did you talk about? Uh, The talk went really well. I was super nervous. (laughs) And you went to it. Did you go to an all girls high school? I did. I went to all girls school. I was really nervous to give this talk. I think just because when I stared out into the sea of of faces, I felt like I saw myself and everyone I went to school with. And it really was sort of life full circle in that moment. But I just shared my story um, of feeling at home with myself. And I talked about my transition from Wall Street to teaching. And I talked about my career and I talked about the idea of success, but I really introduced more of a personal story in that the biggest success for me has been my ability to be at home with who I am and to feel comfortable with myself and to embrace my insecurities and to um, empower myself to be who I really am. And um, I just encouraged them to really follow their own path and that there's no one really to love more than the, per- the, the person within and that the answers don't exist without with, outside of you, but within you. So mm-hmm. That was my message. That's nice. That's a really good little yoga primer message right. to them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but it was it was a really trippy experience for sure. Did did any of them? I mean, it's high school, so I I don't know if they had to go back to class. But did any of them come up and talk to you afterward? They did actually. Yeah. Said that they loved my speech and they loved this idea of following their heart and they loved this idea of being true to themselves mm-hmm. and. Um, I heard a couple of murmurings through other people that it was, the message was well-received. And that means so much because I, I wish I had been told that when I was that age. And I mean, maybe we are all told that when we're that age, but we just aren't ready to hear it. And life is the ultimate teacher, perhaps that, you know, the, the experience kind of burns away. That's the tapasya that like kind of reveals your own inner essence. But truthfully, just the space, to be who you are and to be celebrated for that. Because I think being a young girl is really tough. I do too. I do too. (laughs) And I, you know, I, I just keep coming back to, I think it's a Sally ride quote, which is you can't be what you can't see. Like meaning, you know, girls have to see all kinds of women in all kinds of roles, all kinds of professions, all kinds of mothering roles, 
because I don't feel like my generation had that as much. I think it's getting better and better and better. And I just think it's up to us to, to model that. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, maybe we did hear it, but I think you need to hear it over and over and over again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks, Chrissy. Oh, thank you. This was so much fun. Yeah, it was fun for me too. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Show notes can be found for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 12. You can practice with Chrissy online at guyamtv.com, and I'll put a link to that on the show notes page, as well as links to Chrissy's blog and where you can practice with her in person. Chrissy was also kind enough to share her summer lemonade recipe with us, so I'll put a link to that too. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Yogaland Podcast, or you can sign up for our newsletter. Jason and I have a newsletter together, and if you sign up for it, you'll get five free arm balance sequences, which were created by Jason. And you'll find out when our new content comes out. And we try to publish a few times a week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. I know that everyone asks for this and there's a reason. It really helps us so that others can find the podcast too. Take care and until next time, enjoy your practice.